0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, and we're going to turn to Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. This is the Word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. So, we've already been made uncomfortable by the, the verses that I read in the service this morning, they're countercultural versus the the topic of husbands and wives actually the topic of male and female is countercultural. We live in this day where or when gender bending is the norm it's it's actually fashionable. And our college campuses have given a privileged place to homosexuality to transgendered sexuality to LGBTQ, uh, et cetera. Men who lust for men. Women who lust for women. Men who dress and act like women. Women who dress and act like men. This is just normal. We see this on our television shows. It's a, It's become a normative part of our culture at this point. Even though it's still called queer, it's not so queer anymore. Right? It's not abnormal, queer in that sense, Right? Um, sexuality masculinity and femininity is rejected as being something biological right rather sexuality is malleable it's changeable it is a choice it's a self-determined reality as simple as deciding what entrees you can order at a restaurant right do i want chicken or steak tonight do i want to be a man or a woman That our sexual identity is a changeable choice is why the word gender has become fashionable. Gender is not the word sexuality. There's a difference between those two. Gender, which says our maleness and femaleness, is just a social construct, is used today instead of the word sex, which ties into biology. Sexuality ties into biology, how our bodies are made and their parts. As a case in point... Um, some time ago, I visited the um, the U.S. government website uh, that deals with passports because I remembered reading something about an other box for gender, the gender question. Well, I stumbled across a page on the passport webs- website called Identification Requirements for Gender Reassignment Applicants. Okay, here's how it reads, and I, I just want you to... To hear this, so that you know how mainstream sexual perversion is. If you are in the, pro- the here's how the rep- website reads: If you are in the process or have completed gender reassignment, please note. And there's a bunch of um, bullet points. The ID you present with your application must accurately reflect your current appearance. The passport photo submitted with your application must accurately reflect your current appearance. In other words, if you've transitioned, you have to go with the one you've transitioned to. You can't use a previous, previous picture that looks like the, the sex you actually are. Um, in order to have the passport issued in your new gender, you must submit a physician certificate with your application that validates whether your gender transition is in process or complete. Requirements for all elements of the passport application, aside from gender, still apply, including evidence of legal name change, if applicable. And then it goes on It says, if a physician certifies that your transition is complete, you are eligible for a full validity 10-year passport. If a physician certifies that your transition is in process, you are eligible for a limited validity two-year passport because you're becoming something else, right? And pictures will not properly represent what you're becoming. And so then there's an example letter from a physician that that can be submitted. I, physician's full name, and then the license number, and then the issuing state, and then the DEA registration number, am attending physician of the patient with whom I have a doctor-patient relationship. He... Or she has had appropriate clinical treatment for dren- gender transition to the new gender, specify new gender male or female, or is in the process of gender transition to the new gender, specify new gender male or female. I declare under penalty of perjury under the laws of the United States that the foregoing is true and correct, and then the physician's signature. So, again, this comes. I would imagine as no surprise to any of you at this point this is um, this is standard governmental procedure and the government of the United States of America has been um, has been in social engineering for uh, decades okay our government has recognized gender bending and supplied help to those who desire to be recognized according to their newly chosen gender right and with With a chop and a cut and a few visits to therapists, Mike becomes Michelle and Barbara becomes Barry. And this is the new normal, but it is nothing new. Okay, This is our new normal, but it's nothing new. The Apostle Paul knew about gender bending. He solemnly testified to the Corinthians who were tempted by these things, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor, swindler, or nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so, yes, that, that list does include heterosexual sins by which if someone does not repent of them, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And, and so, but don't lose sight of the fact that the apostle condemns homosexuality and effeminacy, right? Men acting like women and women acting like men. And there can be no greater example of that than the transgender movement. Now, what, is, what does this have to do with us? Well, evangelicals are starting to get squishy on these things are going beyond starting to get squishy, but getting very, very squishy on these things. Even uh, Wheaton College, Wheaton College was at one time a, a fundamentalist Baptist school, um, now has an officially recognized campus group called Refuge, right, for students who identify themselves as gay. Uh, the president of the university officially announced its existence Um, A couple years ago, it was described by President Phil Riken, who used to be a PCA pastor in Philadelphia, as, quote, a safe place for students who have questions about their sexual orientation or gender identity. Wheaton College, fundamentalist. Is it? Previously fundamentalist. Advertisements were spread about campus which said, Refuge, a Christian community for Wheaton same-sex attracted students. So, Christians and what were once quite conservative Christians, are starting to gender bend to provide safe places for students to normalize or legitimize their sins, so the salt is losing its saltiness. Our Trinity commitments come to mind, especially those gap issues at the end of the the commitments um, and, and and part of that part of those commitments there 's a section at the beginning that we used to attribute to uh, Martin Luther, but is not Martin Luther. Um, It's this quote, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except that one little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the, ho- the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefields besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches on that one battlefield. Okay, Wheaton flinched big time. And the church in the U.S. is flinching big time. I mean, there's immense pressure right now. There's immense pressure. I mean, if, if you work for, for Google... And you say anything about gender or sexuality, you, you are very, um, very much on the chopping block, right? We've heard about these stories. Work for any of those uh, tech companies, uh, and, and you, you have to not profess your sexuality or your Christian views. Um, and so this brings us back to this passage. It's very simple verses, does Scripture speak to sexuality? Of course it does, right? Does Scripture speak to masculinity and femininity? Does it speak to the specific sexes? Well, of course it does. Um, there's nothing more fundamental to our makeup. There's n- nothing that is, is um, more fundamental to our God-given life than our sexuality, what we were assigned in the womb by God. Masculinity and femininity are created into the very fabric of God's creation. Right at the beginning, God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. So when he makes male and female, the first thing he tells them is, male and female is going to work, and you're going to produce children. Now this begs the question, will we define masculinity and femininity according to God's, design or plan for it right will we partial will we partially define sexuality by scripture and partly by our growing knowledge of 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 psychology and biology right or will we simply jettison all of the words teaching on sexuality because it because it is as one of the translators of of a gender-neutral translation said hopelessly patriarchal, that the scriptures are hopelessly patriarchal. Our own denomination has gotten a little a little itchy recently. And that's, a, that's a significant understatement. Um, if you've visited my uh, Facebook page where I post links to the things I write, you know what I'm talking about. And why haven't I gotten any... Feedback from my own church. I just haven't. I haven't I, I've spent the week in in a fight. And I just didn't get any feedback from my own church. Just, you know. I need some affirmation every once in a while. Right? Don't we all? Our Our own denomination has gotten a little itchy recently. About some of the teachings of God's word when it comes to sexuality. In... Um I mean, twenty years ago, our denomination bitterly debated whether women should serve in combat roles in the military okay and it and it it was close to not passing it by the slimmest of margins it passed, and all the and it was the committee work that was so terrible right it was it was uh, so terrible, so we couldn 't even we couldn't even affirm very easily the concept that men should should defend their country, men should defend women, and so that was very difficult 20 years ago. Um, the um, now in the recent years there there's motions to um, overturn First Timothy two and the teaching on the fact that that. Um, women are not to exercise authority over men in the church, that the offices of the church are for uh, men. And that's something we're all embarrassed about. Right? We're all embarrassed about that because every other denomination has, has said, well, that's just antiquated patriarchy, Paul being a rabbi, um, unbecoming of our modern knowledge. But it's there in the inspired word of God. What do we do with it? Right, So there are all kinds of questions today, and it's clear that many are, are opening up the diaconate to, uh, to, for women to serve in the diaconate, and overturning this order that God has created from the beginning, that man was to govern, love, and cherish the woman, and the woman was to help the man. Um, and now along comes this Revoice Conference. Right, there's, there's this conference at Memorial PCA in St. Louis in July where the, um, the headlines uh, on their website are things like this, Coming Out in the Shadow of the Cross, Queer Visibility as Redemptive Suffering. The LGBTQ culture at large tends to stress the personal nature of coming out it's up to you to determine how and when and whether you come out. The queer Christian, however, can derive some of the contours of his or her coming out from the scripture and tradition. This is PCA. And then here's another one. Redeeming queer culture and adventure. For the, sexually, for the sexual minority seeking to submit his or her life fully to Christ and to the historic Christian sexual ethic, queer culture presents a bit of a dilemma. A bit of a dilemma. Rather than combing through and analyzing to find which parts are to be rejected and to be redeemed or to be received with joy, Christians have often discarded the virtues of queer culture along with the vices, which leaves culturally connected Christian sexual minorities torn between two cultures, two histories, two communities. So questions that have until now been largely unanswered remain. What does queer culture or specifically queer literature and theory have to offer us who follow Christ what queer treasure honor and glory will be brought into the new Jerusalem at the end of time and then the main the main thrust of this conference is to put forward a new a new Christian sexual, sexual ethic for those who, are, who struggle with homosexuality called spiritual friendships. And spiritual friendships are covenanted, cohabiting, lifelong friendships between same-sex same sex attracted people but without copulation. Living together, traveling together. Uh, everything except for the one thing that they 're holding on to in order to retain the label Christian, which is no sex now i 'm sorry for being p g thirteen in this this uh, sermon but but this is this is what is taking place in the pCA right now. Uh, Covenant has six or seven graduates. Our denominational seminary has six or seven graduates speaking at this conference. They're, 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 the vice president of academics and Old Testament professor is speaking at this conference, and so there's a direct tie to our denominational seminary over over this this conference. And so, please go read those pieces that I published on Warhorn to see what we're saying. About this conference and the stakes for this denomination, um, now get this it, I'm moving on from the descriptors of all these things. I could go on and on about the, the 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 wickedness of this conference, but I'll stop there but listen to this young people, young people, young men and women have always had a a desire a longing a, to live counterculturally. Right? We all went through it when we were young. You know, we, we wanted to be on the edge, wanted to be new, wanted to be fringe. Right? Ironically, most of what is considered countercultural, I mean, you think of the hipster movement with the funky glasses, is actually mainstream. Right? But if you have a desire to be countercultural, just live according to what scripture says, especially about masculinity and femininity. If you want to be countercultural, if you want to be on the fringe, if you want to be uh, queer, in that sense that I'm using the word, then then live as God outlines on masculinity and femininity. Live as if what God teaches you about being a man or being a woman is true, it's right, and it's good, and then talk about it. Talk about these differences, differences between male and female. You bring up any conversation today about differences between male and female. It could be scientifically proven, like the relative uh, height of men and women being different. You'll get dragged through the mud for even mentioning something like that. Okay, because the goal is to erase all differences. And the goal is especially to erase all differences because God made them different in the beginning. And so it's to tell God no. That's what it is to erase differences. It's to tell God no at his crowning crowning moment of creation. We may not go for gender bending, but the way it works out with us is simply to approach sexuality in a generic way the only impact sexuality, for example, has on how we raise our children, think about this. This is challenging. It's challenging to me. The only impact sexuality, for example, has on how we raise our children is whether or not they wear dresses or pink or not. Right? Is that as deep as your teaching on sexuality goes with, with your children, just clothing? Um, we generically approach authority in in parenting and in marriage, right? We generically talk about parenting rather than mothering and fathering, right? We generically talk about um, being a spouse rather than talking about being a wife or a husband. We generically approach things. We do not know what the scripture says about maleness and femaleness and how that impacts what we do and do not do, how we relate to one another in marriage, how we relate to one another in church and also in society, how we raise our boys, how we raise our girls. Those scripture addresses every one of those things I just mentioned. Right? Do you know what God says in his word to mothers of girls? Do you know what God says in his word to fathers of boys? Right. Do you know what God says in his word to husbands of wives? Do you know what God says in his word to wives of husbands? Do you know what God says in his word to fathers, to mothers, to sisters, to brothers? All of those are based on the the differences between us and our sex. Do you know why we only have male officers? Right. Or is it something you'd rather not acknowledge? Right? Is that some, some reason you'd rather be at some other church that has more nuance? Yes, the, scriptures, the Scripture takes a generic approach at times, doesn't it? It does address parents at times. But most often, the, there are distinct directions for males and for females. As if God had something in mind when he said it was very good that he created both male and female. Right, it, it's as if God knew something about authority and submission before He made the first man and the first woman. You might think that that a church that has a divorce rate no better than that of the pagan world might want to search the Scriptures for God's teaching on marriage and sexuality. Right, but look, it's really uncomfortable to, uncomfortable to follow God's commands in a world that teaches that maleness and femaleness are are arbitrary or are a prison that we must break out of right or or worse yet vestiges of an oppressive age when fathers ruled right do you do you want to know what scripture says about this area? Will we acknowledge that we have been fed lies by, th- by Satan through the false prophets of our media, of our teachers, of our professors, of our newspaper editors, of our politicians? Will we believe, like any other area of scripture, that there is true freedom, that there's true joy in obeying God's commands? There's true joy Right. E- even and especially at this point, can we please acknowledge that men have to learn about the beauty and strength of true masculinity and women have something to learn about the beauty and strength of true femininity. Right. I hope to show you, I mean, th- that. I mean, that there's no getting around this from scripture. I mean, how many passages could we go to where it where it breaks out the two sexes and addresses them separately? Right, it impacts everything, and we should um, we should expect such because um, it because of its prominent start in God's creation. It is good, but it's very countercultural, and very good. So. Um, My my hope is that the word of Christ dwells within all of us richly, right? Especially at these points where, where it's, where there's a cost to following Jesus Christ, right? Especially at these points where we can confess this without, um, without you know cultural baggage. Um, nothing about God's word is arbitrary. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit who knew that it would be dissonant with the teachings of 21st century Americans. Did God know this culture in which his word would be uh, preached? Yeah, he knew it. He knew it. He gave it to us. He hasn't given us a different form. He hasn't given us a Bible for the 21st century. He gave us the inspired and word of God, and it's eternally true, right? There's not, you know, when... Um, after the first uh, transgender operation, the new Bible did not fall from the sky. We have one Bible, and it is eternally true. And so we must not even change our translations to become more gender-sensitive, as is happening with much modern translations. We must not deny the inspiration of the Scriptures so we can seem more tender and progressive, right as is happening today. We must not be embarrassed by God's words by God's commands and so ignore them, right? No, we must believe and obey. We must trust that God is a father who gives good gifts to his children, knows what he is talking about when he addresses woman and when he addresses man, when he addresses boys and when he addresses girls, when he addresses wives and husbands. We must also repent of the ways that we as Christians have just, just wanted to go the way of the world. And so now, very briefly on our passage, here's one tiny little passage where there are distinctions made between male and female. And our, our tendency is to want to just wholesale reject it because we, as 21st century Americans, don't, don't allow distinctions, particularly the one between male and female. God can address us as persons, but he cannot address us as male and female, and yet, here we are. It's split up and it's offensive in what it commands. Feel its countercultural weight. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Oh, the vestiges of Paul's rabbinical, patriarchal madness, right? Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. That's almost as outlandish as the first sentence, right? Husbands, don't be embittered against your wives when she's nagging you all the time, right? When she won't have sex with you. It's impossible, right? We say it's impossible, right? (laughs) When it comes to marriage, male and female actually mean something. We orient our marriages not according to age or IQ or education or generic experience or height or weight, but according to sexuality. That's how we order. We could determine to order our marriages by IQ. I mean, why not? I mean, that's how most people do order their marriages. Whoever has the highest IQ and earning potentials wears the pants. That's nowhere to be found in the Word of God. The Word of God says, no, I'm going to make a split in marriage concerning sexuality. And that's what's going to be the ordering principle of Christian marriage. Right? Wives are to be subject to their husbands, and in Ephesians it's even more offensive, it says in everything. To be subject to their husbands in Everything. And husbands are to love their wives and not be embittered against them. The fifth chapter of Ephesians parallels this entire chapter of Colossians very closely. In that, the Holy Spirit says the same thing, but listen to the elaboration on it. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church. Ah, so it's theological. It's not just arbitrary. It's meant to image something that precedes marriage, right? Christ and the church. It's a very theological concept. That's why you're, you're, you deny the gospel when you deny male and female. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, think of that. The church is subject to Christ. When was the last time you, did, you saw the church commanding Christ to do something? Have you ever seen that? The Roman Catholic Church tries to do it all the time, actually. That is an unsubmissive bride, right? They're constantly putting words and adding to the words of God, and so they're trying to command God. It happens all the time, right? But that's that's not the church. The church is is to follow Christ, who is God Almighty, right? But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Again, theological. And gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Wives submit, husbands purify Right? Which one would we choose? Which one's easier? Which one's harder? I don't know. It's a toss-up, isn't it? Because I'm lazy, and I don't want to purify, and I don't want to engage, and I want to read a book in silence, which I never get, right? And, and, and yet to be subject to me, you know, I realize is, is an, an astonishingly difficult thing because I, I'm a dope most of the time. I'm goofy when I should be serious. I, I I'm I'm at the right point of, you know, between depression and joy. I'm at the wrong point usually with my family, right out of odds with them. Now we can't get fancy with these pa- passages. Um, wives, do you know what it means? I mean, simply, do you women? Do you know what it means to be subject to something? Do you know what it means to be subject to something? I mean, do you know what it means to submit to something, right? When, when you're in, uh, in MMA, it's called a submission, right? When, when you can't fight anymore and you tap out to show the other guy you need to stop. There's nothing more that I can do. I can't make any decision that's going to make me go anyway, that's going to make me win this fight. It's called a submission. Now, is that what we're talking about in marriage? right? You can't go, you know, no input. There's no way you can go. You can't speak, you know, um, just be, just be uh, the doormat sort of figure. No, that's not what it means. But what it means is that your husband has authority over you for your good. And you would do wise to submit to his authority rather than buck against it. Doesn't mean you can't Sway his opinion? Of course you can. I mean, if you talk. If you're not talking, probably not. But if you talk and if he's reasonable and he listens, everything he does is going to be for your good. But he makes the decision. He, he leads, right? He sets a spiritual vision for the home, right? And, and um, he's responsible. And he will be held responsible one day. But do you know what submission is? That means deference. That means not objecting. That means going along with him when you think he's wrong. That's what that means. That means showing deference. It means, I mean, this is easy for us in a whole ton of other places, isn't it? It's easy for us. um, I just think uh, if we were in, in the presence of any governmental authority, say we walk into the governor's office, our speech immediately changes, doesn't it? We're not going to be talking about goofy things and conspiracy theories when we're standing in the governor's office or in the president of the United States office. You know, there's going to be a sense of office there where we change the way. We're going to be thinking about, can I sit down or can I not sit down? You know, it, it changes the way we respond to authority. There should be something of that in the relationship between a husband and a wife. A respect toward her her husband where she defers to him happily i mean this is insanely countercultural isn't it i'm feeling weird talking about it right most of you get this but we have to keep repeating it because we are products of our culture i constantly find myself the soft man unwilling to lead unwilling to give my wife something that's worthy of submitting to right and she is constantly trying to usurp me she's constantly trying to rule over me and go ahead of me yes she's a sinner women sin it's true women do sin but do you know what submission is have you thought about it and how you're relating to your husband today or did you just wake up and nag him again The reason wives begin to question these passages, not because they don't know what submission is, but because they'd rather not submit to the sinful man God gave them as a husband. That's what it comes down to. Every young bride thinks they've married a saint, but they marry sinners. And then the reality comes home that, oh my, I have to submit to a sinner. That's terrible. I don't think I can do this. Likewise, husbands, do you know what it means to love your wife? Do you know what it means to love, love your wife? Right? To, to, what are you whispering, Sarah? (laughs) To, you know, do, do you know that your wife needs your love? She needs your affection. She needs you to not be so wound up, Right? After coming home from work and all that trouble and all those, you know, the thistles that are growing up in your field that you have to take care of, she just needs to be loved, right? She needs you to look her in the eyes and to, and for you to grab her shoulders and, and take her away from the kids, right? That's what she needs. And that love, will make her calling to submit to your God-given authority an easy joy. An easy joy. The woman is also called to respect her husband. There has to be a respect. And I find that that is sorely lacking in many marriages. There's not respect. And respect, respect it's hard to respect sinners. It just is very hard to respect sinners. You have to work at respecting sinners. Everyone sins, so it's hard to respect people. I find it hard to respect anybody, let alone you know, those closest to me that I spend the most time with and know them graphically, right? So, so we have to work at that respect, and men need respect. Parallel passage in Ephesians makes a distinction between what a man is to give a woman and what a woman is to give to a man. The husband is to love his wife, and the wife is to respect her husband. Verse 33 says, Each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it you know must see to it you got you got to get to this you got to you got to work toward this you got to see to it that she respects her husband find something you can respect for your husband for find something right it may be at the beginning it may just be the way he makes pork chops on the grill but hopefully it becomes his godliness Hopefully, it becomes the way he disciplines your children. Hopefully, it becomes the way he orders his household and provides for you. Hopefully, it becomes way more than, than, you know, his famous pork rub, right? But that's a start. That's a start. Um, That word respect, do you know what that word respect is? It's fear. See to it that the, the woman fears her husband and that's that is a proper corrective to the softness that we have today it's the same word that is used in how we are to relate to god we are to fear him likewise women are to respect and fear their husbands now this is awkward and this is you know this will be the point where half the the men come up to me after the sermon in the narthex and make a joke about it they'll try to break the t- and this happens to me all the time when there's a hard sermon People will joke with me out in the narthex because they want to break the tension that they're feeling with their own wife, right? So don't ever joke with me after I preach God's word. I can see right through it. I know why you're doing it, right? You're rejecting what I'm saying. Now, but they'll come up to me and joke about it and... and um, You know, my wife fears me or, you know, I'm really going to go home and something like that to break the tension. And then um, I'll let you know what I'm thinking and, and, and won't say it later. Stop fearing your wife. Stop fearing your wife, husbands, and start loving her. You're fearing your wife if that's what you think it means to lead. Husband is to love, to have his wife's heart in mind. In how he relates to her and the wife is to have her husband's authority in mind and how she, relate, she relates to him. When one of those two gets out of whack, there is go- that's where the bitterness creeps in. When the love of the husband is not evident, the wife's submission is strained. Right? When the respect of the wife is not evident, the husband's love is strained. Right? You've known this in your marriages. You've known it on a daily basis. And remember this, women are exhorted by the Holy Spirit to be subject, to submit themselves to their husbands. They are not exhorted to make sure their husbands are loving them. That's not the exhortation. The exhortation is to submit to them in everything. Likewise, husbands are exhorted to love their wives and not to make sure their wives are submitting to them. How many couples have I counseled who were more concerned about the Oh, they're not doing what they're commanded to do here and not themselves successfully doing what they've been commanded, right? Wives who, who, um, who moan about how their husbands don't love them. Meanwhile, they will not in any way submit to their husband, right? And husbands who moan about their wives not submitting to them. Meanwhile, they haven't spent a minute of the past month filling up her love tank. Right. Um, Do do what God exhorts you to do and see if obedience to the Lord yields good fruit in your marriage. Right. And by this, I'm not advocating that women aggressively submit, submit in such a way that you get what you want. That's just a manipulation. Right. Have joy in your heart, knowing that you're obeying God's commands in submitting to your husband. You're actually submitting to God right? Have joy in your heart that you get to serve Jesus in this way. You're doing what he calls you to, even if your husband or wife does not respond with faith. Exercise your own faith and remember that your love for Jesus will be evidenced by your obedience to his commands. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Well, love Jesus and do this, even if it isn't about your husband or wife, right? Uh, this is about doing all things in the name of the Lord, not doing all things to get what you want. And so it says, "Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them." This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray. We pray for our denomination that there would that the there would be repentance over the the confusion about male and female we pray for ourselves that there would be repentance over our own confusion about male and female the oh, lord that we would live as your word commands and and by that know the joy that comes through faith that comes through obeying your word Lord, thank you for making male and female. Thank you for ordering your world in the way that you did. Thank you for the, the, the beauty of Christian marriage between a man and a woman and the fruitfulness of that marriage. Lord, help us to repent where we need to repent and to grow in strength by your Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Come now to the Lord's table. This is a table for Christians. This is a table for those who have professed their faith in Christ, who have been baptized, who, who, have, uh, who are members of a Bible-believing church who are seriously uh, progressing toward membership. And so if, if you don't fall into those categories when the trays come, just let them pass by. You must have put your trust in Jesus to come to a meal that, He invites his children to. Right? And so um, you must have professed your faith before the elders and been admitted to this table, or at another church have done that. And so um, there's one other thing also, you should you should before we come to this table, we should think about what it means to come into the presence of Christ's authority, right? Um, when we come into this fellowship meal with him and feast on his very body and blood by faith, then we should, should have uh, made sure that we're coming in properly. And that means examining ourselves, right? Did we think through this week the way the sins that we had committed or the people that we had committed sins against? And did we talk to them and reconcile, right? And so we do that work. It's called self-examination. But it's for the purpose of repentance and reconciliation so that we may come and take of this meal in a worthy way. Now having, if you've done that, then come and feast on Jesus Christ. I mean, think of that. Feast on the body and blood of the Son of God. Feast on it. Be nourished on it. Proclaim again your faith before God and be nourished at this meal. I want to mentioned that esther dion has been examined by the session and has been welcomed to the table and so she will be uh, partaking of the lord's table assuming she's done the what what that oh yeah that's right thank you for reminding me and austin as well has been examined by the session and admitted to the table and so they will be coming to the lord's table assuming that they have done this work of examining themselves ahead of time but let me read the words of institution and then we will come to this feast for i received from the lord that which i also delivered to you that the lord jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we thank you for... Oh, the forgiveness of sins that came through the breaking of Jesus' body and the shedding of His blood. To think, Father, that we have been made white as snow, cleansed from all iniquity. And to think, think, Father, that we have such close fellowship with Jesus Christ, even being united to Him, that we can We can feast upon his body and blood spiritually by faith. Lord, these are are amazing gifts that you have given to us. And we are but dust. And we thank you that you are mindful that we are but dust. But you have given us amazing gifts. I pray that in the eating of this meal that you would strengthen us. That our faith would be strengthened. That we would be reminded of the powerful work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.